Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, Sherry Spriggs, head winemaker at Nye Timber, England's sparkling wine trailblazer. We talk about working with husband Brad Greatrix, why the couple came to England, what defines English sparkling wine, and why she feels we English might be a touch too self-deprecating. Ask anyone to name an English sparkling wine and chances are Nightimber will be the answer. First established in the late 1980s when England's wine scene looked very different. If you heard Henry Jeffries in episode 121, then you'll understand why. Nightimber has been a trailblazer ever since, but the real critical acclaim has been for the wines crafted by head winemaker Sherry Spriggs and husband Brad Greatrix, who came to the UK from their native Canada in search of work back in 2007. And the rest is history. Well, let's find out how it all came to pass. Uh, Sherry, welcome to The Drinking Hour. Thanks, David. Tell us how you ended up making the journey from uh, your native Canada it was quite some time ago now, uh, to uh, Mm. deepest Kent. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, we, first I I should say, I work with my husband, uh, Brad Greatrix at Nightember, Mm. and he's a pivotal part of the journey that we landed uh, here in in England. So going right back, one thing to understand is uh, whilst I sound was born, raised um, in Canada, I actually have dual citizenship with the UK. And that's because my father was born in Cambridge and he emigrated to Canada some years ago. But because of that, I've always held dual citizenship and a, shall I say, a fondness um, for this country. Anyway, um, my mum and dad are big fans of this country and would visit quite often. And on one trip um, many, many years ago, they asked me, what can we bring you from England? And I said, well, I've heard about this thing called Nightimber. Could you get me a bottle? I'd like to try it. And that's exactly what they did. They brought, they found it, brought, brought it back. Um, at this point, Brad and I were doing our master's degree at the Wine Research Centre in Vancouver, Canada. And we sat down one night, middle of the week, no preconceived ideas, opened up this bottle and both went, wow, okay, it's maybe not perfect, but there's a lot of potential here that's really quite interesting. Anyway, some years later, Brad and I had always thought that we would make wine in Canada. And we were looking at various job opportunities that had been presented to us in Canada. And they were fine, but they were opportunities that perhaps we could have been more excited about. Not to say there's not a great industry in Canada. There is, but these particular opportunities were maybe not um, quite as desirable as what we were hoping for. And we were out for an evening walk one night talking about the future. And Brad just asked me this question. He said, if you could do anything, what would you do? And the first thing I said was, I'd like to make sparkling wine and I'd like to make it in England. Wow. And that's because I thought back to this tasting of the wine some years prior. Anyway, we got home and the next day I wrote an email to info at nightimber.com and said, hey, we are two young winemakers and we're wondering, is there enough of a wine industry in the UK 
to warrant moving there and looking for work. And I had an email back from um, the uh, lady who was in the cellar at that point in time, holding the winemaking position saying, actually, our CEO is looking for two fully qualified winemakers as we speak. So send your CVs. Uh, He'd been searching for six months. And so off went our CVs. They landed in front of uh, our owner and CEO, Eric Harima. We had a telephone interview in fact, two telephone interviews. And uh, at the end of that conversation, those conversations, um, we were offered the opportunity to come to England and start working in the role, see if it was a good fit. And two weeks later, we were in England working at Night Timber. Um, And it didn't take even two weeks to figure out that that's exactly where we wanted to be and we wanted to stay. And that was back in February 2007. So many, many, many years uh, ago, though it feels shorter than the actual duration um, in time that it's been. Yeah, 17 years ago. And the fact that it wasn't just you looking for a job at the time, it was also Brad. It's pretty uh, incredible uh, piece of, yes. uh, of serendipity, isn't it? it? It is, but I think it's also a good lesson because it took Brad asking that very simple question, if you could do anything or, or what is your dream job? To go, actually, you know what? Don't forget your dreams. Remember what your dream might be and chase it because you never know. You might have something as serendipitous as as happened with Brad and I. Um, we were right time, right place. But also, I'd say, importantly, really right fit. We were looking for something particular in the owner and CEO of the business that we were going to work with. And he was looking for something in his winemaking um team as he looked to the future as well and and that relationship is very important and it was just such a a beautiful fit yeah I'll say and you work as you mentioned in a double act with husband uh Brad um I've seen you both present together at uh at various uh launches you have this unsurprisingly given that you're married you have this incredibly uh, close and 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 uh you know really fascinating relationship of course working with your other half uh, wouldn't be for everyone. It's certainly, uh, much as I love my partner, it it wouldn't be for me. Um, So how does that work? You know, the the fact that you are, you do everything together. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's there's a few elements that feed into this. One side is that, in fact, we don't know it any other way. Brad and I met when we were Uh, doing our undergraduate degrees. Um, We were doing a bachelor's of science in Canada in biochemistry. And that's where we met. And we we started our relationship even studying together. And then we went through our journey of getting into the wine industry, falling in love with wine together. So in one respect, we don't really know it any other way. But also, I like to say, I think sometimes working with your husband or wife could be difficult depending on your industry. You know, we're not two criminal lawyers who come home with a very stressful kind of um, world that we're dealing with. We're in the wine industry and our industry is tough. It's hard. There is stress. There's no doubt. But it's also an industry of joy. We're doing what we do because we're making something that people share at some of their most pleasurable times of life. And that's probably the most fulfilling thing of our jobs. And we can very much connect on that. And we love wine. So, you know, we're sharing a common, a, a common love in what we do. So that makes it all seem rather effortless. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Do you always mm-hmm. agree on things? No, Um <laughs> You know, when, you, uh, when you've when you been together with someone for as long as Brian and I have been, and we've been tasting and working together for so long, there, there there's a few things. One, we know each other's strengths and weaknesses. So there's certain times and certain areas where I will defer to Brad because I just know he, he's better at it than me in that particular area and, and vice versa. Ultimately, if we don't agree and a decision has to be taken, that's mine to to take i'm the head winemaker responsible for the the vineyard department and the winery department so technically brad reports to me <laughs> but most of the time i think because our communication is 
we've been we've been working together for so long our communication is so strong that we mostly can talk through and figure out what is the best solution rather than any hierarchical hierarchical way of making decisions and he's always been very happy that ultimately uh, you're the boss yeah and hopefully he'll be okay with that because i i don't consider myself a tyrant <laughs> <laughs> no he he seems he seems pretty cool with it to be fair when yeah. ever I've been anywhere yeah. near the, uh, uh, the the pair of you. Um, let, let's talk yeah. about uh, the other man you mentioned there, uh, the boss, yeah. um, Eric Harima, a really key <laughs> figure in yeah. the industry, you know, larger than life by uh, any measure, and has clearly had an enormous influence on English sparkling wine, not just Nightimber, because of uh, what he has uh, brought uh, to, to Nightimber. Um, you clearly work uh, very well, you and Brad, with Eric. Very much so. Um, we are, well, first, if I come back to what I was saying about when we were choosing who we wanted to work with, what we found in Eric that you don't always find in owners and CEOs in the wine industry is someone who has an incredible amount of vision and has a driving force and he he does what he says he's going to do he's not he's extremely committed and he looks at the wine industry in a very long-term way he's not he's not unrealistic about how long it takes to achieve what you want to achieve as a business in this in this industry he's also I mean we bonded quite quickly over our love of wine he is I think since a very young age, since he was a teenager, he he has been a passionate wine lover and a wine drinker. And I think you need that. You want someone who's in love with what it is that you're making and trying to achieve. He's an extremely driven man. He's an extremely visionary leader. And he is able to see potential. And I think he could see potential when he took over Nightimber that just wasn't there in the industry at the time. And he really, you know, we, we talk about those early days and we talk about how it felt like we had to justify our existence. We, we, we knew what was possible, but there were things that needed to be worked on and improved on and, uh, and fixed. So we knew where we could get to. And we had to prove that and we had this to, to stay the course and do the hard work in order to make that happen. And you don't get that with every leader, you, but you, that's very much my experience of Eric. <laughs> yeah, he's notoriously demanding and there's nothing wrong with that, yeah. of course. Uh, but he does seem to give you and Brad a lot of creative freedom as well. Eric is very clear in his vision and leadership. And he's very clear about the people in the business that are experts in their role are expected to be the expert in that area and to, to, to bring forward that expertise in proposals and ways forward and what have you. And Eric is very clear about what he's good at and what he's not. And he, he doesn't pretend to be a winemaker. So he, he leaves that for us. Um, which also means we're responsible and accountable for what we do. So, you know, it's not it's not free sailing. You 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 still have to work extremely hard and do your job and prove that you're competent in what you're doing. So um, it's I don't see that as just us. I see that across the business of it, people who prove in their areas of expertise to be extremely competent effectively can just get on with it albeit it's not like a free for all you you still have to you know put your business your business cases forward um in any given area and he saw this uh, potential in english sparkling wine and he saw this potential in night timber uh, when he took it over and it's um it's worth reflecting on the fact that in 2006, I think it was, when he took over, then 2007, when you started with Brad as, uh, as the winemaking team, um, English sparkling wine back then was in a very different place, wasn't it? 100%. I mean, I remember going to my first, well, at that time, it was called EWP, um, English Wine Producers Tasting in London, uh, very first one I went to. 
And I must admit, I mean, I knew something of the industry being in Canada, but I didn't have a full sight of the uh, industry by far. And when I went to that tasting, I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, there's a lot of work to be done in this country. There, there, there was skepticism about the industry for good reason. There were bad wines being made. There was lack of professionalism. There was lack of vision. There was still naysaying about, oh, you can't grow Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier in this country. We, we, were, we were told multiple times that the industry would never grow, that it would never be able to sell in any volumes um, at all, like basically things, things that we've far surpassed by now. So yeah, there was, there's a lot of there's a lot of skepticism and a lot of paving the way that needed to be done. And, and it's a lot of hard work to do that. And how have you seen English sparkling wine evolve? Obviously, a lot of hard work, a lot of money, uh, a lot of investment has gone in uh, to to the industry. Uh, you mentioned that when you were first uh, tasting the wines, there were some, you know, uh, wonky wines there. Um, what has yeah. changed, do you think? What has evolved? Many areas, actually. I think there's been, yes, investment. That's You, you can't create a wine industry without that. That's a, a, And in sparkling wine, it's even harder because it's even more expensive. But you 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 have to have that. You you you, you can't um, grow and achieve quality as an industry without without that. I think the other thing that I've seen change over time is the understanding of the importance of true professionals being in the industry. Back in 2007, um, you could argue that it was it was a kind of a cottage industry and there was a bit of a hobbyist feel to it rather than a professional feel to it. And I think as people have come in and invested, they've realized, well, we can't just do this as a hobby. We need fully trained, internationally experienced, not just winemakers, but also viticulturalists. Um, we need to have that knowledge and know-how come into the industry. We need to understand that producing bad wine is is not okay. And And I think generally the market takes care of that because bad wines don't sell well. <laughs> and I think that's been more important than anything else. I know people like to talk about climate change, but really my view is the industry has transformed because of the knowledge and professionalism that has been brought forward in these years rather than something external. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, It's worth mentioning Stuart and Sandy Moss as well here, isn't it? Because although your era of uh, Nye Timber, uh, where it's really powered ahead has been under the leadership of Eric. Stuart Moss uh, played a, a really pivotal role himself uh, in the previous generation, didn't he? Sure. I mean, the, the vineyards began with plantings in 1988. And if you could imagine rewinding all the way back to then, at that point, it wasn't just, oh, you know, can you make decent Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier in this country is should you be putting those vines in the ground at all? Because there, everybody said that they wouldn't grow, that there'd be too many problems, that it was impossible to work with those varieties in this in this country. And they did it anyway. And I think that feeling of, we believe that we can do this and we're going to go ahead despite the naysaying is that that foundation of where Night Timber started has continued um, throughout Eric Rima's leadership as well. It's just how we, it's just how we think. It's almost in second nature. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's fair to say Nye Timber with its uh, history, but also its current scale and uh, yeah. the profile that uh, you and uh, Brad have, have brought it in terms of quality. Um, it does mm. an awful lot for English sparkling wine uh, more generally, I think, uh, as a, a trailblazer, um, that must uh, be, you know, a weight to carry around to an extent for you and Brad. You know, I, I find this question interesting because I see it as somewhat analogous to being asked, you know, it must be stressful dealing with the, the variability of English weather. And I don't know if it's just me, uh, but I don't see it that way. I I don't feel that 
there's this unending weight. I just see it as an ethos of how we think. It's just how we, it's just how we approach our, our day-to-day, year-to-year vision for what we look to the future for. So I don't feel that weight. I know that there is the historical perspective of what, not just what, what we did in terms of planting the vines back in 1988, but, but the enormous transformation that's come under Eric Karima as well, and the professionalism that he has led the way to bring into this industry. Mm. But that's just how we do things. It's not like, a, oh, we need to do this because of what our past is. It's just, that's just how we think. Yeah. And I get that. I mean, it's a very healthy way to think. Uh, I I suspect. Um, What would you say um, if someone landed from, uh, I was going to say from Mars, but actually there are people all around the world who haven't tried an English sparkling wine. So they don't have to come from Mars, actually. They they could come, frankly, from from Australia. But um, what would you say to them uh, if you were describing what makes something English when it comes to sparkling wine, how it's defined yeah i mean it's it's always a tricky one isn't it because describing the characteristics of wine full stop is 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 a difficult thing i'd much rather give them a glass and say here taste it and that will tell you everything you need to know um but if we speak in in sort of generalities we are in a cool climate we are in a northerly area and we do have higher acidity than many other sparkling wines of the world. So you have that baseline level of um, structural differentiation. Now, one of the benefits of our climate is um, getting a little bit technical here. It used to be when you would talk to the Champenois, they would talk about the magic 100 days. And then what they meant by that is the number of days between flowering and harvest. And if it's too short, then you, uh, you've you reached your sugar maturity before you've got flavors at full ripeness and full evolution. And if it's too long, then you can run into problems of, well, m- many different problems, whether that be disease or unripeness or winter weather setting in and, you know, heavy frost coming to deal with. Now, over time, they're, they don't often have in Champagne these magic 100 days. And if I look at Nye Timber and our history, we used to be a little bit too long in the number of days. But we now sit with this with, quite often right in or at this 100-day window. And the beauty of that is you have this long enough season that you can build these very delicate flavors that are so beautiful and you you don't see in other wine regions so there's a real in in terms of the flavor spectrum of the fruit characteristics we get from the grapes grown in this country there's a beautiful delicacy to them and that doesn't mean they lack power of intensity it's like the way i i think of it almost musically so if you think of the spectrum of an orchestra you've got you've got your bass your tenor your alto, your soprano, we sit more in the higher end of the flavor spectrum than we do in the lower end. It's, no analogy is perfect, but does that kind of make sense? <laughs> yeah, it does. And actually, when you said I'm going to get technical, I, I panicked slightly, but that's that's uh, very uh, uh, yeah. easy to understand, to, to, to relate to. It's uh, a really nice uh, uh, analogy. Champagne is obviously mentioned, um, in the context of English sparkling wine, uh, because of the decision that was taken to to go for the same grape varieties, um, yes. and therefore it's often compared uh, with Champagne, which um, I always say was hugely helpful in the early days of English sparkling wine because it was a good benchmark. But um, it was a good way of of, un, uh, of consumers understanding what it is and, and price as well. Uh, do you think sure. um, these days that comparisons with champagne are kind of uh, still valid or are they kind of redundant these days? First, I'd say they're inevitable. It, it will happen. And it, I don't see that changing in the near future because there's so much more champagne than there is English sparkling made to begin with. 
And also they have for so many years been sitting up at the top end of the quality spectrum of sparkling around the world. So there's this sort of inevitability. And when you have, when you're trying to, we, we were just talking about describing English sparkling wine. And it's very hard, no matter what you're describing in the world of food and wine, it's hard to do descriptions without comparison to the thing that is most known. And with champagne being more known than English sparkling wine, it helps when you're trying to describe what someone might experience or encounter to, to, to have that reference point. Now, that being said, I do agree with you. There, there, there's sort of a limitation to the validity and the helpfulness of comparison. When you're dealing with people who are new to the category, and yes, there are still people in this country that are coming into English sparkling wine new, <laughs> um, late adapters, as it were. Um, that, then there can be some use for for that comparison. But I think we've got enough of an industry here in the UK now that is thriving and of good quality that the comparison to champagne becomes a bit, uh, it, it becomes less interesting. It becomes less useful. So yes and no. Um, yeah. That's how I feel. Okay. Well, yes and no is... Uh, the answer to many questions, actually, two things can be true. And I, I'm sure that's the case with the comparison with uh, champagne. I saw an interview with you somewhere when I was doing my homework, where you yeah. uh, rather, um, rather touchingly said that um, us English are not very good at appreciating um, some no. of the things that we have. We import yes. lots of stuff. Uh, we import, you know, uh, 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 the majority of our food, I think. And uh, I, I read this interview with you where you have this perspective because you grew up in, in Canada. You've always felt that we don't necessarily appreciate what's around us enough, what we have. Look, I think English people are getting better at it. But, um, I mean, I certainly remember in 2007 when I came here, I'd constantly be asked, oh, why did you move here? Um, and I'm like, well, why wouldn't I? I <laughs> look at this. This country is stunningly beautiful. You have some of the products grown in this country is outstanding. And I think, I think, yes, there's a little, I think self-deprecation in England can at times go a little bit too far. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and yeah, there's, there's things, and maybe it takes the outside perspective coming in to point out to you, you, you know, you, you grow some of the best apples in the world. You've got this, I mean, take something as humble as celery. I cannot stand eating it in North America, but it tastes brilliant here. You've got, you've got things that suit this country, this climate so perfectly and are so beautiful that they deserve more celebration by people in this country. And I think English sparkling wine is just one of, one of many things in that regard. I mean, there's some amazing cheeses being made here now as well. So there's a lot to love. I think that's absolutely right. And I could go on for hours about English apples. Boy, they're, they're, the, they're the best. So let's talk about you, your own train set there with, uh, with Brad, obviously, as well. The, the, the terroir. So tell us about um, the, where you grow your grapes and, and what differentiates those different plots, because it's quite a patchwork. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, if you were looking to do things the easy way, you'd find one big field and plant it. <laughs> but that's not our approach. We, we only want to plant on south facing slopes that are not too high in altitude, that have a good protection from frost risks, that have a good exposure to the sunlight. We, um, we personally at Night Timber would only like to plant on two types of soil, um, that being chalk or green sand soils. And, and so when you start looking at all the criteria that you want for planting vineyards to produce the quality that we are looking for, you almost have to do a patchwork approach. And bear in mind at Night Timber, we only use grapes from vineyards we own. So for our growth over time, if we want to do that, we need to buy more land and plant more vineyards. So we are now, indeed, we're spread um, into 11 vineyards. Six of them are, actually, before I say this, I, I slightly hesitate to say the county that they're in because it's more important to us what soil they are in and what their climate um, differentiation is because vines don't know what political county they're in. They know what soil and climate they encounter. And that's what you taste when you, when you see them. 
why are those two soil types in kind of layman's terms so important? Yeah, well, look, no one can deny it rains in England and you're going to have seasons where you get a high amount of rainfall. Um, Even in a low rainfall season, there's still a significant amount. Now, vines don't really like having wet feet. So that's one key important thing to know. And that, that therefore, and particularly for our style, we want something that is elegant. We want something that stands the test of aging time that has a delicacy to it. Um, we, we're, we're not looking for more rustic characteristics that, that can be nice for its own style, but that's not what we are looking for at Nightimber. So chalk and green sand are both free draining soils. Now, they're not like, uh, it, it's not, when I say green sand, people might imagine the beach with a different color. And it, it's not like that, because that that is obviously free draining, but you still need some water retention. And what's so amazing about chalk and green sand is they have, particularly chalk, has this almost, think of it like a sponge. If you, if you're, if you pour water through a sponge, it will go through, but the sponge also holds that water without, and with all those little pockets of air. So your roots don't actually sit in a cold, wet environment. And that's the, that's the key thing. They need to be free draining with some water holding capacity, but not with roots that are sitting in a, in a wet, heavy soil. Um, and it's just, it's just our opinion. We, we believe that the flavors and the characteristics that you get from grapes grown on those soils are most conducive to long aging, elegant, sparkling wines. And those, well, chalk is obviously very, very similar. There's slight differentiation in, you know, age of chalk. Um, but champagne and um, chalk in England are very, very similar. And green sand is not identical to what you find in champagne, but there's analogous soils like that in the champagne region. So there's a certain, dare I say, tried and proven background to such soils. And beyond those soils, um, the uh, position you're in, the aspect of an individual plot uh, the microclimate, the you know the the wind because it gets really very windy uh, in the yeah. UK too, is is very wet. These are all really pivotal to uh, choosing your plot, aren't they? They they very much are, and and in fact, you, you know, our our company started in West Sussex, um, started on a green sand soil, and we decided that we wanted um, some chalk soil. And, and, and part of the reason we left West Sussex is to find chalk soils with those criteria. Now, obviously there are chalk soils in West Sussex, but a lot of the sites are North facing, which is not good for ripening. Um, and some of them are South facing, but they're too close to the, to, to the ocean. And the problem with that is you're very exposed to wind. So when you're looking for your 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 sites, you need to take into account that wind because it can severely impact the vines um, in terms of their ability to to grow, to mature, to ripen fruit. And again, if you're too close to the sea, you can also have problems with uh, you, you can actually have difficulty for the vines because of the salt that comes in on those winds off of the ocean, it can be quite damaging um, to, to, to the vines as well. So there's a lot to consider when you're looking at a plot. You've got to look at all these different um, elements uh, when you decide what's going to be best for your vineyard. Yeah. And a really interesting point you make about county lines, uh, you know, are, are just that. They, they are political lines drawn for our um, yeah. you know, council tax and our rubbish collection and our education system and all the rest of it. They're not really, they're nothing to do with soil, are they? No, it's a way to tell people roughly where our vineyards are, but they they don't, that's not the driving character of what makes wine taste the way it tastes. And I think, you know, the natural question that constantly comes up is about, will we end up with a kind of an Appalachian system in England as they have in various parts of Europe and perhaps maybe um, a, we have to want to, and, but most importantly, we have to 
see by taste where those divisions lay. It's it's a bit premature to to come in with a line on a piece of paper and try and say, oh, those are all going to taste the same. Well, actually, the way wine industries tend to evolve is you have enough producers in an area and there's a commonality of character that then defines what that region is. So I think, you know, that might come in time. We're not there yet. Meanwhile, we'll continue to tell people what county our vines are in, but explain that that doesn't mean anything to the vineyard. Um, that's vines are ignorant to such things. <laughs> yes, yes, thank goodness. Um, the classic cuvee <laughs> is um, really quite famous these days, I think. Um, your um, most ubiquitous product uh, in terms of its uh, availability um, and yeah. this is um, non-vintage. Um, how do you go about the consistency, bearing in mind English weather and vintage variation, in producing a classic cuvee like that? Sure. I mean, it's a, it's a great question because it very much speaks to the vision um, that uh, and, and the improvements that have happened since Eric Rima um, has come into this industry. He wasn't scared of the negative comments that were made about English wine. They were more just things that needed to be worked on. There was certainly commentary at, back in the day about um, product consistency. And it's frustrating to a consumer, even if something is vintage dated, if you have one year that tastes really great and then next year is rubbish, which can be the case, you can have difficult years to contend with. That's not really fair to your consumer. So one of the things we talked about in the very early days was making a non-vintage. Now, we decided quite quickly that non-vintage as a name doesn't work for us because it's quite negative. And, 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 it, and it's a bit confusing, too, because you can take a wine that's 100% from one year and call it a non-vintage because you decide that you want to do that from a classification point of view that to say to try to indicate in some way that it's lesser in quality but i still think that's confused confusing to the consumer um and and also not really transparent about what it is that you've sold them so we decided we were going to make a non-vintage in the tradition of using reserve wines across multiple years and therefore, we would call it a multi-vintage blend. So we call our wine, the Classic Cuvée, multi-vintage. Classic Cuvée, the term, was a coin first termed by Nightimber. It's not legally regulated in, in any way, but it's meant to de derive the meaning that the three classic grape varieties, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier, are all used in the blend. It is indeed the wine we are most known for. It's our flagship wine. It's the wine that we work the hardest on at the time of blending and we don't make, there are, I know when we first started making other cuvées like the 1086 or the Tillington or, I mean, gosh, even, even Blanc de Blanc, we would get questions of, Oh, if you make that, isn't that going to be a problem for your classic cuvée? And our immediate answer is if it makes a problem for our classic cuvée, we won't make those wines because we have to protect that. It's the wine that, most people will encounter first when they discover night timber and it needs to speak to the quality that we stand for as a business. So first impressions matter. It's got to, it, it's got to be, it's got to be right. So when we're working with our um, classic cuvee multi vintage, what I wanted to do was use reserve wines in a way that didn't mark the wine it, with a heavy stylistic character. There are certain lovely, notable champagnes made where they'll take reserve wine and treat it in a certain way or age it in a certain way that will bring a, quite a strong winemaking characteristic into the blend. But what I was looking for was more, if you take, you, you've got one vintage that's, let's say, extremely ripe and one vintage that's extremely cold and you've got less ripeness, I wanted to take the edges off of the variability and you can do that. This is slight oversimplification, but you can do that by using your reserve wines as a sort of a, an averaging operation where you're, you're keeping your reserve wines from various years and 
when you create your classic cuvee blend using some of the older um, years to to balance out what you didn't necessarily get in that given year. So I, hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, no, it, <laughs> it's it a difficult does. thing. To- <laughs> it's genius as as a process. Uh, it's it's where the. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the Champenois were so remarkable given how unpromising their climate was when they started doing it and, and the evolution sure. of, of non-vintage. Uh, I agree with you, by the way, anything with non in front of it does have a negative connotation. It's just the way language works. So it's a, it's a great idea to uh, go in a, a different direction. Uh, talking of which, you, you mentioned 1086 there. I remember being mm-hmm. at the launch um, at the Ritz in London of the uh, uh, 1086, your that's a new top cuvee with a new price point to, to boot. And I recently yeah. tasted the, the 2010, which is uh, just, just deliciously complex. And so, um, I mean, it's, in, it, it's sort of enormous, but it's also so beautifully balanced that it's also delectable. It's, 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 it's incredible. And the 2013 Vintage Rosé uh, yeah. 2, which is, 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 is wonderfully uh, live. What were you seeking yeah. to achieve when you developed 1086? So again, in those early year conversations um, with our goal and our strive to be a global English luxury brand and one of the top wineries in the world, we knew that it would be, dare I say, a requirement to prove the quality potential that sits in this country. And we believed, based on what we could see and experience of our grapes and our harvest and our vineyards, that the potential was there to make a prestige cuvee. And really, that was that was as simple as the goal got, was let's make prestige cuvee when the opportunity first affords itself. So it has to be the right year. We have to have the great characteristics as we like. We have to have the opportunity where, where we are not cannibalizing the quality of our classic cuvee in order to make these wines and the first opportunity came actually in 2009 that was our first vintage uh, which we only made the white and then the second opportunity was 2010 which is the current white that we're selling now and then the 2013 vintage now to be perfectly clear the other thing that we really knew right from the start is to be one of the best cuvées in the world, it was going to have to age. And I love your comments that you just said about the 2010, because that's over 13 years old now. And it it does have power, it does have intensity, but there's still a tautness and a, 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 and a youth that will allow that wine to, to continue to develop even more. And I think you know, we, we keep proving ourselves on the international stage, and I think 1086 will, will do that for us as well. The price point at the time set a new bar for English sparkling yes. wine. I remember it raised a few eyebrows in the room uh, as well. <laughs> I'm, I'm just looking it up. It's, it's, it's somewhere between 130 and 150 quid, depending on where you buy it. Um, yes. Were you setting out um, to kind of prove a point uh, with that price point, or did you sort of arrive at the quality and, and then decide the premium price, you know, based on that yeah and uh, well mostly the latter looking at what we had and you know we're not we're not working in isolation as it were it's not uncommon that we buy wines competitive wines and taste ours within that set and try to be it's really important as a winemaker to be objective and to be okay with saying, actually, I'm not happy with that. That's not good enough. Um, And make those differentiations of quality, even if you've made it yourself. (laughs) I think that's really important. So we needed to be able to look to look at ourselves and feel confident that actually, yeah, we do believe that this sets quality side by side with its peers, some of which are even far, far, far more expensive um, than ours. And it's interesting to me that you that you asked that question also, because if I reflect back on my entire time at Nightember, I mean, we used to get the same comment or question about our classic cuvee back in the day of, oh, you know, I, I remember being specifically told, oh, you, you English wine will never be able to charge more than uh, 15 pounds for its sparkling wine. And meanwhile, champagne at that point was sitting kind of 25, 30 pounds and we're looking at it going, hang on a sec, this isn't right. We've got, we've got same quality as what 
the what's being produced for for champagne. So I think it's part of being a leader and a pioneer in an area of being able to be confident that what you're producing is worth what you're selling it for. And you can't do that blindly. You need to be honest with yourself, but that's, that's just our approach to everything that we do. I think. Yeah. Touche on uh, the uh, point about the, the classic cuvee. Cause I, I don't really think anyone questions the uh, price point of that now, not seriously anyway. Um, no. Uh, what about still wines? Because uh, sparkling wine has made the running uh, for uh, the English industry, uh, but the still wines have been uh, rising quite rapidly recently in quality terms. Um, I used to be quite sceptical. I'm not anymore about still wines. Would Nightimber yeah. make a still wine? I can definitively say we have not and have no plans to. Um, my my winemaking take on it is this. Well, I actually have two key points on this. One is that, again, if you go back to what our goal is as a business, we want to be one of the top wineries in the world, not for England. So we need to be confident that the product that we're producing, and there's a key word here, on a consistent basis, stands up to the competitors, to competitors of wines made internationally to its international peers and we strongly believe and i think we've proven that for sparkling wine we can do that now still wine can that be done on a consistent basis i think you'll have to talk to other producers in the uk who are making it to get their views on that um but i think that's the question mark that needs to be considered the other thing and really important for us is when we look technically at how you plant a vineyard, how you trellis that vineyard, how you prune that vineyard, how you deal with the shoots for that vineyard, the exposure, et cetera, et cetera, <clears throat> your approach, if you're making sparkling wine of doing that, and your approach, if you make still wine, are not the same. So what we don't agree with is having a vineyard that sometimes you make still and sometimes you make sparkling because inevitably one or both are compromised in the quality that you could ultimately achieve if you set your mind to, this is what I'm going to make. And I think that plays into just the Nightember drive and ethos of being laser focused on what we do and being very clear that we want to make the best that we can judged internationally. And to do that, we need to be working from the planting upwards on a focus towards the best quality sparkling we can. And if we did still wine from those same vineyards, I think that could be, well, I know that would be problematic. There you go. That's a no then. Um, no one could accuse you of not answering that question. That's uh, uh, but yeah. qualified too. Uh, we normally end with a desert island wine with our guests. Yeah. And if I was <laughs> just to limit it to your own portfolio, if you were, um, given the choice of, of one of your own wines, any of them, it can be from the the, the, the library, uh, to settle down with, but you were only allowed one forevermore, um, which is a horrible thought, but um, what yes. would it be? What would you choose to enjoy? Gosh, that is really mean. I know, it's a nasty question, <laughs> it's like isn't it? To, it's like saying to a mum, which child will you take to the desert island with you? <laughs> I know. Uh, I think I think I think I'm gonna I'm gonna contextualize it. That I'm gonna assume this is a nice, warm, sunny, hot place. And my mind always goes to rosé when I think of such environments, and mm. and 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 therefore it's going to be the 1086 rosé that I would take with me. Yeah, delicious. Well, uh, it's been a great pleasure talking to you, um, and fascinating too. And and uh, what I I love is you really uh, you really seek to answer questions as well which is fantastic so uh sherry um congratulations on what you and brad have uh, achieved at uh at night timber in these last gosh uh 17 years i think and um and here's to lots more of it and thanks so much for taking the time out to talk to us on the drinking hour not not at all and it's been a pleasure david thank you the drinking hour with david kermode in partnership with club onologique the world through the lens of wine and spirits We conclude, as always, with some medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame to tempt you. And keeping it topical, England 
is our theme. Uh, we featured a few of those top medals uh, when we talked a couple of episodes ago to Stephen Duckett at Hundred Hills. Uh, we featured two golds for Rames and Hattingley Valley then. Here are some other top medals. Everflight, Brute Non-Vintage. This from East Sussex, the South Downs, and the name is inspired by the martlet, a bird said never to land. And this was tasted by Matteo Montoni MS, Megan Clark, Paolo Brammer and Fianula Sinnott, with the judging overseen by renowned sparkling expert, master of wine, Essie Avalin. The panel described Everflight Brute as an excellent example of focused nose and broad palate, a markedly mineral opening sees plum and stone fruits meld with walnut and brioche on a velvety mouthfeel. Graceful, racy and long. Busi Jacobson Wine Estate is a relatively new name that's making some really delicious wines. Their Cuvée Brute 2019, a silver medal winner. Uh, the judges praised its great intensity and expression. Toasted almond, orange peel and honeysuckle aromas lead to ripe stone fruits, yellow apple and pear with a fresh, balanced finish and smooth, refined mousse. Coates and Seeley Reserve Brute Non-Vintage from Hampshire, a silver medal winner too, described as stylish with a peaches and cream character, lovely fruit concentration, balancing savoury toast note, bright acidity and a flavoursome finish. And another success aside from that gold medal for Hattingley Valley Wines, their Rosé Brute 2019, a silver medal winner, the tasting note, complex aromas of red berries layered over floral, violet and pepper spice, elegant and beautifully fresh on the palate, displaying a precise fruit purity and indulgent flavours of raspberry tart. And last but not least, Greyfriars Vineyard Blanc de Blanc Brute 2015, also a silver medal winner, the judges praising a complex perfumed bouquet of creamy lemon tart, freshly crushed almonds, white floral notes and fruits, impressive autolytic character on the palate, creamy, superbly poised and lifted by tingy acidity, delicious, they said. And that's it for this edition of The Drinking Hour. My thanks to uh, Sherry Spriggs. Hope you enjoyed our chat. And do join us next time. Until then, goodbye. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.